Hello, and welcome to the reading of The Courier for Thursday, December 15th. I am your reader, Peter Welch, and you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Well, let's take a look here and see what's going on. Let's start now first with Des Moines. State finances to dip slightly. Panels projected $9.6 billion for coming year tops current state spending. State revenue is projected to fall slightly in the coming state budget year. According to the latest projections from a panel published on Wednesday, total state revenue is estimated to be just more than $9.6 billion in fiscal 2024, the budget year that starts July 1st, which is down from the $9.8 billion recorded in the current budget year, according to the panel. That's a dip of 1.9%. The estimates were calculated by the state's revenue estimating conference, which meets which meets quarterly to project state revenues. The panel's annual December projections are used by the governor and state lawmakers to craft the next state budget. That work will begin in earnest when the 2023 session of the Iowa legisla- legislature begins next month. While state revenue is projected to decline, it still is comfortably above the most recent state spending. Governor Kim Reynolds and lawmakers led by Republican majorities in both chambers of the legislature, legislature I should say, spent just more than $8.2 billion on the current state budget. There's no question we continue to overcollect from Iowans to find the priorities that the General Assembly and the governor have identified in the past, said Craig Paulson, director of the State Revenue Department and a member of the fiscal estimating panel and a former Republican state legislator. The Revenue Estimating Conference is comprised of three members, one each from the nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency, the governor's office, and an independent member. In addition to Paulson, who serves as the governor's representative, the panel includes Jennifer Acton with the legislative agency and Dave Under- David Underwood, an economist from Mason City. Paulson said that the projected slight dip in the state revenue can be primarily attributed to recent state tax reductions, most specifically the elimination of state tax on retirement income that takes effect in 2023. Those recent changes will continue to impact state revenue as the number of income brackets and state income tax rates will be gradually reduced over the next five years, at the end of which all Iowa taxpayers will pay a 3.9 state tax on their income. The changes are projected to save taxpayers and thus reduce state revenue by nearly $2 billion annually. Paulson said he does not see cause for concern about the future trend in state revenue. I have no concerns about meeting the obligations the state has and meeting the priorities they have with regard to state spending, Paulson went on to say. Okay, let's go over to Cedar Falls. Red Cross honors 15 emergency responders, staff of Mercy One and Cedar Falls Public Safety praised. The American Red Cross recognized a group of Cedar Falls Public Safety Department and Mercy One first responders with life-saving awards on Wednesday. The honors presented at the Cedar Falls Public Safety Building celebrate the actions of the specially trained police, fire, and healthcare professionals and their extraordinary service in the line of duty. 
the dedication of these individuals to serve others, to remain calm in the face of intense adversity, and work selflessly to protect their community is truly what it means to be a first responder, says Cedar Falls Public Safety Director Craig Burt in a statement. We thank them for all they do for the people of Cedar Falls and congratulate them on this well-deserved honor. Fifteen first responders were honored at the morning event. Officer Morgan Hoft, Firefighter Christy Hansen, Firefighter Josh Getz, Firefighter Troy Purdy were recognized for their response to an incident in which they were involved in life-saving procedures on an unconscious patient. Officer Hanna Offa, Captain Derek Brown, Firefighter Javier Mercado, Firefighter Ethan Schultzen were recognized for their response to an incident involving a pregnant woman who, along with her newborn, were ultimately safe and healthy because of their efforts. Officer Tom Fay, Firefighter Scott Dugan, Officer John Kramer, Lieutenant Carson Barron, Firefighter Ethan Schultzen were recognized for their response to an emergency involving a patient who lost consciousness while on the phone with dispatchers. Mercy One colleagues Bruce Ernest and Laura Staley were recognized for performing life-saving measures on a pregnant woman before getting her to Mercy One Waterloo Medical Center to have an emergency cesarean section. The woman and her infant recovered at the hospital before being discharged. What else is going on? Now let's go to Waterloo. Old Kmart to be storage facility. Store local co-op gets zoning change permit for Waterloo building. A former Kmart building is on track to be repurposed. Waterloo's planning, programming, and zoning commission on Tuesday approved rezoning and issuing a special permit for 3810 University Avenue. That will turn the empty building into a climate-controlled storage facility called Store Local Co-op. Man Road Storage LLC of Mount Vernon sought the zoning change and special permit. The Kmart closed in 2017 and is mostly zoned for commercial use except for the most northwestern portion of the building, an adjacent green space, which is zoned as residential. City planner Eric Schroeder said he wasn't sure of the history behind why the building's tip was zoned that way. However, the property line butts up against the yard of a home on Progress Avenue. Resident Nick Graves expressed concern during the meeting about the rezoning. Are they able to do anything with that property? Graves asked of the green space adjacent to his land. Am I going to lose all that, or is the company going to put a fence or a parking lot or retaining wall up next to my house? Chad Kelly, a representative of the applicant, said he would be open to rezoning all of the area, except for the 20 or so feet next to Graves' property. Graves said that he was okay with that decision. The next thing that the commission has to approve was is a special permit for man road storage. The request is conditioned on the final site plan meeting all applicable city codes, regulations, as well as installation of sidewalk along Progress Avenue. Store Local describes itself as a cooperative of self-storage owners and operators coming together to increase their com- competitive advantage in the marketplace on the company website. 
two store local co-ops are located in Cedar Rapids. As we celebrate the holidays, we also celebrate Hanukkah. Menorah lighting to mark the season. Gathering set Sunday at Cedar Falls Overman Park. Rabbi Aaron Shamel hopes a 10-foot menorah lighting brings about the positivity that needs to overcome times of darkness. For a second year, the community-wide celebration returns to the Cedar Valley area. Uh, but this time, the director of the Shabbat of Northeast Iowa says it will be hosted by, at Overman Park at 316 West 3rd Street from 6 to 7 p.m. Sunday, the first night of Hanukkah. Due the, to the proximity of University Northern Iowa and the open arms extended by the city, in particular Mayor Rob Green, who showed an interest in creating unity between different groups. His synagogue felt the central spot in Cedar Falls would be an ideal place to enjoy Hanukkah and help diversify the community offerings. We hope to spread a positive message and that it will be a lovely event for all to enjoy, said Shamil, whose synagogue is located in Postville. Volunteers will offer latkes and donuts, as well as crafts and other gifts like Hanukkah, gelt, chocolate coins, dreidels, and memoras to take home. Music and dancing will be part of the experience as well. He said that the Jewish community sometimes tends to stick to themselves, and it will be an outgoing affair to get everyone together and share in a universal message. No matter how small or how few or weak we can overcome any overwhelming negative energy through kindness and the support of God, Schimmel says. A little light dispels much of the darkness, he adds. We're not fighting the darkness. We're adding positive actions. And that will be done, one of my powerful messages. Well, as we're coming down uh, closer and closer to the finish line with Christmas shopping and Christmas acts almost here, here's something else that's going on. Uh, a poll is showing that Americans say that holiday presents are getting harder to afford. More than half of the U.S. adults say it's harder to afford the holiday gifts they want to give this year. 69% of them say that they've seen higher prices for holiday gifts in recent months, up from 58% last year. According to a new poll from the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research, and 57% say it's been harder to afford the things they want to give, a dramatic increase from 40% one year ago. The vast majority of those finding it harder to afford gifts say that they've cut back on giving as a result. Last year, 89-year-old Darlene Huffman used some of her government stimulus money to buy KitchenAid food choppers, which cost around $40, for her six children. But this year, with the price of gas and groceries and other basics eating into her limited income, Huffman is downsizing. She plans to buy them each a $10 trash can that attaches to the back seat of a car. I have to watch my P's and Q's, but God has supplied all my needs, and I'm not complaining, said Huffman, who will spend much of the season volunteering at food and clothing banks in her hometown of Greenville, Ohio. U.S. inflation appears to be cooling. Consumer prices fell for the fifth straight month in November, the government said on Tuesday, but prices were still 7.1% higher than a year earlier. 
and an increase felt most acutely by low-income households. About two-thirds of Americans in households earning less than $50,000 annually say they've had a harder time affording gifts and food for holiday meals this year, according to the APNORC poll. About 6 in 10 of those in households earning between $50,000 and $99,999 found it harder to afford gifts and food, along with half of higher-income households. Rosalind Coble doesn't plan to buy holiday gifts this year. Coble, age 63, lives on monthly disability checks and has struggled with higher prices for food and other necessities this year. I'm less interested in going out and trying to buy things, says Coble of Okaboro, North Carolina. I'm not as much into it this year. Coble is looking forward to spending the holidays with family, and she's expecting a small raise in her disability payments in January. Next Christmas, I'll be able to do more, she says. The poll shows nearly all Americans, 95%, have seen higher-than-usual prices for groceries in recent months, up from 85% last year, according to the poll. The U.S. government estimates that, estimates rather that food prices will be up 9.5% to 10.5% this year. Historically, they've risen only 2% annually. 83% said that they had experienced inflationary gas prices, about the same number as last year. 74% reported higher electricity bills, up from 57% last year. As a result, many buyers may be looking for discounts this year, and retailers are likely to respond. The average discount rate across all categories online was 31% on Thanksgiving, up from 27% last year, according to Salesforce. Tierra Tucker, a 34-year-old daycare worker in Chicago, said she's been shopping since Black Friday for her twin 13-year-old daughters and has found deals on many of the gifts they're getting, including iPads, purses, clothes, and bracelets, and, and, and making kits. Tucker hasn't cut back on gifts for her daughters this year, but she won't be spending as much on others. Tucker recently moved and said that she has had to focus on getting things for her new home. So, her seven nieces and nephews will get gift cards instead of toys. Overall, U.S. holiday sales are expected to grow at a slower pace than last year. The National Retail Federation, the largest retail trade group, expects holiday sales to grow 6 to 8% this year, down from 13.5% in 2021. Daniel Rees, a postal worker from Midland, Texas, said that he made more money than usual this year thanks to overtime. But he's still thinking twice about what he buys in the face of steep price increases and losses to his 401k plan. I do give it a beat. If I need it, I need it. So I will get it, he says. But some of the luxuries like beer or wine, maybe I'm not getting to buy because everything is more expensive. Rees, age 51, spent $1,200 last year on Christmas buying handguns for his two adult children. But this year, he's already warned them not to expect high-end gifts. I'd rather spend $200 and buy steaks and all the fixings, Reese said. We'll make it more about family than material items. Okay, still here in Waterloo, residents recount 2021 home robbery. Grandmother calls, or I should say recalls rather, terrifying night. 
two teens crashed into her home. A Waterloo grandmother said she was terrified and confused when two teens armed with guns crashed through her bedroom window and climbed inside her home early one July morning in 2021. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I couldn't believe someone was coming in my house with guns. I couldn't understand why they were in my home, the woman said on Wednesday as trial for one of the intruders began. Authorities alleged Patrick Roosevelt Hickman Isabel, now age 20, and another teen forced their way into the modest Newell Street house to rob the woman's 19-year-old grandson, who the day before had flashed a fancy watch and nice ring in a social media post showing off his new haircut. Isabel of Waterloo is charged with first-degree robbery, first-degree burglary, and going armed. Awakened by his grandmother's screaming, the grandson, the grandson, I should say, said one of the assailants, dressed in dark clothing with a hoodie, cinched tight to hide his face, kicked in his bedroom door, pointed a gun at his head, demanded money, the gold chain around his neck, and anything else of value. The grandson said he didn't have any cash and began digging through his room trying to find something to offer up. When he couldn't find anything, the gunman began knocking stuff over, searching. Staying in a downstairs bedroom, the teen's mother could hear the commotion and the robbers demanding the ring, and she had given him a month earlier as a graduation present. She could hear them threatening to kill the grandmother and shoot the grandson in the head. The mother called 911 and hid under a stack of clothes next to the dehumidifier. Within minutes, police were on the scene. The residents and robbers could hear the officers outside telling the suspects to surrender. The grandson recounted how the intruders darted back and forth down the hall trying to find an escape route. One of them tried to open the window in his bedroom but couldn't figure out how to work the latch. We can't shoot our way out of this one. Hide the guns, the grandson recounted, hearing one of the robbers saying. One of the robbers ditched a bag of would-be loot in the basement. Isabel and the other suspect, Wilmaris Calron Burt, eventually left the house and gave up. They were detained by police. Investigators found a 9mm Taurus G2 pistol with an extended magazine hidden in a couch. The grandson told the court, that he knew Isabel as someone he used to work with at Walmart and who had been dating a friend of his. Isabel waived his right to a jury trial, following a judge to hear evidence in the case. Bird, who was 17 at the time, pleaded to first-degree robbery, first-degree burglary, going armed in October. Sentencing will be at a later date. Okay, let's go to Cedar Falls again and concession stand bid approval for CFHS. $210,794 deal awarded to Horizon Equipment. A, a $210,794 contract was approved by the Board of Education on Monday for concession stand equipment at the new high school. In a 5-to-1 vote, the board awarded the bid to Horizon Equipment of Egan, Minnesota. The new Cedar Falls Community Schools building will open in the fall of 2024. The concession stands will be a part of the stadium adjacent to the high school. Board VP Jenny Leeper abstained, while board member Susie Hines dissented, disagreeing with the process to review the concession stands. 
I don't believe the review process incorporated the right people, which I've expressed because of the fact that the district hasn't run concessions for over 40 years. Separate volunteers have done that, Hines said at the meeting. I'm encouraging Dr. Patti as they move forward with concessions at the high school and that they get the right staff and volunteers on how it's going to be coordinated and managed and supported. Horizon Equipment's bid was around $4,000 less than the bid of the other company, Wilson Restaurant Supply, which is based in Cedar Falls. It's unknown when construction will begin. On a different matter, the board unanimously approved the Cedar Falls Educational Assistance Plan for paraeducators participating in a previously announced pilot apprenticeship program. The program, being done in partnership with the University of Northern Iowa's Purple Pathway for paraeducators, is funded by a state grant through the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. Around $780,000 is allotted for the plan, which is required by the IRS when the district receives payment to have courses paid for or reimbursed. Purple Pathway enrolls paraeducators in UNI's teacher education program so that they can become licensed teachers. There are 15 paraeducators in the Cedar Falls District currently in the program. This is a unique way of working through licensure to be able to work through student teaching and have that embedded within the job role that the paraeducators are currently doing across the district, Superintendent Andy Pate said. Within two years, they will be fully certified, licensed teachers, and hopefully moving into the classroom. And now let's jump over to Waverly in Iowa. Board of Education Director districts are changing in Waverly Shell Rock Community Schools following unanimous approval of a redistricting plan. Two maps were presented Monday, and the board chose Proposal 1. Director Districts 1 and 3 largely remain the same across both proposals. The major changes are in Waverly. Compared with the old map, District 4 loses a sizable amount of land to District 1 and some to District 5. The changes are a result of the 2020 census. State law allows for a maximum variance of 10% in population among director districts, but data from the 2020 census indicates a variance of 46% according to board documents. In other businesses, the board re-elected Dennis Epley as president and Alicia Jensen as VP. The district's business manager, Joan Lowe, was appointed treasurer and secretary. Approved the resignation of Mickey Ballman, principal at Cary and Shell Rock Elementary Schools. Approved construction change orders of the Northeast Elementary School at 2400 Horton Road with seven subcontractors. And those changes increased contracts by $29,915 for uh, Plum Tech, $17,118 for Nelson Electric, and $12,226 for K&W Electric. Other changes decreased contracts by $5,000 for Tri-City Ironworks and by $2,550 for Black Hawk Roof Company, Mid-American Glazing Systems, and Pro Wall Construction. In Waterloo, the, uh, the Board of Education on Monday approved the purchase of Link and Enterprise Resource Planning Software and the acquisition of network security for Waterloo Community Schools. 
Board members unanimously approved buying Link software that handles day-to-day -day business items like human resources, payroll, project management, overpower school. The district expects to pay an estimated $506,779 over five years, around $100,000 less than Power Schools estimate. After moving into closed session, the board deliberated on the purchase of the network security to prevent hijacking attempts into the district systems. But the approved is kept anonymous. But AKW INJI Director of Community Relations said that the purchase would cost $81,145. This includes three years of maintenance, support, and update with the selected security prof, uh, product. And just a couple quick uh, Met briefs here. Church hosting a Christmas dinner in Waterloo, Westminster Presbyterian, will hold its 42nd annual free Christmas Day dinner on the 25th of December, and the church is located at 1301 Kimball Avenue. There'll be two sit-downs times at noon and 1 p.m. There'll be a drive-through cold meal available, up to eight per household, or dine-in hot meal at the church. Turkey, ham, mashed potatoes, and gravy, stuffing, sweet potatoes, green beans, rolls, and pumpkin, pumpkin pie will be served. And reservations are needed by Tuesday, the 22nd of December. Busing is available for a limited number of local guests who must reserve by the 20th of December. Now, if you're interested and you want to go, here's who you call. You call 319-234-5501. The number again is 319-234-5501. And briefly, Santa visits Woodstock Road. Families can meet Santa Claus, enjoy candy canes, and take in the festive holiday decor at the annual Green Greet, I should say, excuse me, Greet Santa event from 6 to 8 p.m. on the 22nd of December and on the 23rd on Woodstock Road. Okay, let's look at the Cedar Valley section of the paper. Michaelia Montgomery, she loves her kiddos devoted to excellence. In Waterloo, Michaelia Montgomery is all about commitment to excellence in the classroom and in athletics. In fact, excellence is part of the name of her workplace, the Dr. Walter Cunningham School for Excellence, marking its 20th anniversary this year. The 32-year-old has been there for half of the school's existence and for her in entire teaching career in the Waterloo Community Schools. Montgomery, a graduate of East High School and Drake University in Des Moines, is Cunningham's assistant principal. She's also drawn additional duties this year as head volleyball coach in her alma mater, East High. She played volleyball herself at Easton Drake. In that capacity, she's reconnecting with some of her Cunningham students. I love on I love on those girls at East just as much as I love on our babies in the building at Cunningham Montgomery said. I can relate to them being a graduate of East High, knowing what those hallways are like, reminding them, hey, you better be in class, she says. It's not something I'm disconnected from. She, gra she graduated from East in 2008 and Drake in December 2011. She returned to Waterloo teaching, Cunningham, uh, I should say Waterloo Teach at Cunningham, obtained her master's at the University of Northern Iowa and became Cunningham's assistant principal beginning with the 2017-2018 school year. 
Prior to that, she was a classroom teacher and a literacy coach. All at Cunningham, she said. That's my building. One good thing about it is at any given time, I can go into a classroom. It's not anything unusual to see me sitting next to a kid on the carpet. Sometimes they need it. And sometimes I need to make me still feel connected. With the 20th anniversary at Cunningham facility and staff are emphasizing the school's namesake excellence with students, she says. We want our kiddos to have pride in everything they do. You'll hear us say, are you showing pride and excellence right now? Because the one thing is, we want them to start internalizing that and start knowing that they do great things. It doesn't matter what school you come from. You can be anything you want to be, as long as you're proud of the output that you're giving and you're doing your best whenever and wherever you can. Being that I've taught and now I'm an administrator, that building, those babies mean a lot to me, Montgomery goes on to say, because I want to see them do well. Also, she said, I love that now that I'm up at East High and I see some of the kiddos I had in my classroom at Cunningham, they come up and they need a hug and we're touching base and she can say, hey, I'm still holding you to that. I'm expecting you to do big things. The first students she taught at Cunningham are now juniors at East. Those kids are our future, and we have to believe in them, she said. To me, it's a pleasure. It's a blessing. She drives home lessons for the classroom, the field of athletic competition, and life. Given that I did go to Drake and I was a full-ride volleyball scholarship, I really learned the importance of a student-athlete, she says. She's making it real for students and my athletes now. You have to be that student first. You have to perform in the classroom first to be that athlete you really want to be. And you have to have a backup, she says, a plan in life beyond or after athletics. What do you think you're going to do as star athlete may not work out? And it's okay. That's something I learned big when I was in college when a nagging injury limited her career. What's going to be my backup plan? At that time, I knew I wanted to be a teacher, Montgomery recalled. I wanted to be able to impact kids and wanted to be able to make a difference. I knew I wanted to be an elementary teacher. They love you every day when they're little. And getting into coaching was, I want to share what I've learned in this game that I love with others. All right. Uh, I want to remind you that you are listening to the reading of The Courier. And this is December 15th. And hey, look, only 10 days left before Christmas. Get that, get out there and do that shopping. And I am Peter Welch, and this is IRIS, Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the uh, Blind and the Disabled. And yes, we do have uh, some obituary news here. Let's take a look at that right now. Eilina Butcher has passed at the age of 93 of Shell Rock, formerly of Waterloo. And she passed away on the 13th of December and was under the care of uh, the Shell Rock Senior Living and under care at University Point Hospice. Public visitation for Eileen will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. on Friday, December 16th at Haggerty Wakeoff Group Funeral uh, Service, West Ridgeway location. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, December the 17th of December. 
also at the funeral home on West Ridgeway with Pastor Gerald Kaponka officiating. Barbara Buck has passed at the age of 79 of Waterloo, and she passed away peacefully on the 13th of December. And memorials may be directed to Cedar Valley Humane Society at Northeast Iowa Food Bank. You can also go online and you can go to www. and I will spell it H A G A R T Y W A Y C H O F F G R A R U P dot com. And Richard Aaronholz has passed at the age of 79 of Waterloo. And memorials may be sent to the Alberta Thomas Memorial Scholarship Fund at the Allen Hospital Foundation. Lock Funeral Home at Tower Park is handling the arrangements, and they are at 319-233-3146. Ordi Heskoff has passed at age 100 on Sunday on December 11th at Grundy Community Memorial Hospital in Grundy Center. And visitation will be 9.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, the 17th of December at the First Christian Reformed Church at Wellsburg in Inurnment will be at 10.30 a.m. that day at the uh, church cemetery. Memorial services will be following the church. Anderson Funeral Homes in Conrad are entrusted with the arrangements. Online condolences may be sent to www.andersonfuneralhomes.com. All right, let's turn the page. What to watch on television for Thursday, the 15th of December. Call Me Miss Cleo on HBO Max. This documentary revisits the era of corded phones and one 900 numbers to chronicle the rise, fall, and reinvention of controversial and revered 90s television, television psychic Miss Cleo, the self-proclaimed voodoo priest, priestess known for her larger-than-life persona and memorable ascent, whose popular telephone hotline eventually came under fire for its alleged deceptive practices. The film feature, the film rather, I should say, features testimonials from the closest to Miss Cleo, as well as from actors Raven Simon and Deborah Wilson. Who Killed Santa? A Murderville Murder Mystery on Netflix. This special holiday installment of the Murderville comedic murder mystery series featuring some improv elements from the actors against stars Will Arnett as Detective Terry Seattle with celebrity guest detectives Jason Bateman and Maya Rudolph together. They're on a mission to find out who killed Santa. But the catch is, is that Bateman and Rudolph aren't being given the script and have no idea what's about to happen to them. They'll have to improvise their way through the case, and it'll be up to both of them to name the killer. Beauty and the Beast, a 30th celebration on ABC at 7 p.m., starring H.E.R. as Belle and Josh Groban as The Beast. ABC's live-action Beauty and the Beast will celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Academy Award-winning children's classic by pairing the original film with a live musical on air. Also includes Joshua Henry as Gaston, Shana Twain as Mrs. Potts, and Martin Short as the charismatic Calabra 
Lumeri, and or I should say Lumeri, I think I should say. Dolly Parton's Christmas of Many Colors, Circle of Love on NBC, and that's at 8 p.m. This 2016 film is the second production based on the life and works of Dolly Parton. It finds Dolly's beloved dad, Ricky Schroeder's, scheming to surprise Mama Jennifer Nettes with a Christmas gift that he could never afford. Young Dolly and her siblings excitedly join in this scrimping and saving in a selfless act of love. And on TLC at 8 p.m., Dr. Pimple Popper. Boy, yeah, that's funny. With every cyst mass card I write. <laughs> in this one era special, uh, one hour, I should say, special, dermatologist Dr. Sandra Lee, also known as Dr. Pimple Popper, and her medical assistant, Christy, are rocking around the Christmas, Christmas tree as, as they recreate scenes from their favorite holiday movies and make cards for their patients. And in between the holiday cheer, Lee and her staff help patients look their best for the upcoming festivities and bring joy as they help them look and feel their best for the festive selves and holiday. The Parent Test. That's on ABC at 9 p.m. And this is a new series. Allie Wentworth MCs this experiment. Twelve families allow cameras into their homes to capture their child-rearing style to determine which method works best. They take part in challenges. Tonight's kids brave the high dive. And we can't leave the page without catching a classic. Catch a classic is on Turner uh, Channel, you know, the Turner Classic Movies. And the star of the month is Ava Gardner, 60s Siren, and Ava and the Armed Forces. Tonight's Turn to Classic Movies lineup, saluting legendary actor Ava Gardner, only consists of four titles, but they encompass nearly all of the star's film work during the 60s. They demonstrate how, even if her star may not have been as bright as it had been during the previous decade, her acting skills were terrifically on point. She'll star in the following movies, The Angel Wore Red, The Night of the Iguana, Seven Days in May, and 55 Days at, Pe at Peking. Those are good films. Try to catch one of those if you can. And I'm sure you'd like me to read something from Amy. Ask Amy. Daughter wants two dads to walk her down on the aisle. Dear Amy, I recently got engaged to my boyfriend of 11 years. It's been a whirlwind. I moved out of my parents' house when I was 16 because of my alcoholic father and very complicated mom. I moved into my boyfriend's parents' house. They have treated me like their own, and I have a very good relationship with them. I have a decent relationship with my parents, but only when my dad is sober. If he drinks too much, he becomes combative and verbally abusive. When planning the wedding, I told my boyfriend's father that if my dad became too drunk, then he could walk me down the aisle, but then someone suggested having both him and my dad walking me down the aisle. Today, I lightly suggested this to my father. I feel like I hurt his feelings, but what should I do? I mean, I feel like if I don't let him walk me, then my boyfriend's father will be disappointed. But I don't know if I can fully depend on my father either. Stuck in the middle, dear stuck, the essential error I believe you made 
was making your request contingent. If my dad gets too drunk, will you walk me down the aisle? First of all, how very sad that you even have to think about that. And yet, of course, you do. That's what life is like for the child of an alcoholic. Every decision you make regarding your own life has a what-if at its core. Being raised in the household rattled by addiction is extremely debilitating. Children of alcoholics are most often on high alert, trying to anticipate other people's feelings so they can't try to head off problems or incidents before they become overwhelming. Your wedding day is the one day where you should plan to do exactly what you want. and The people around you should work hard to help you have the wedding you want to have. My own bias is toward the marrying couple walking together down the aisle, and yet I realize that culturally this is not the norm, although this would help you to avoid the entire awkward question. If you want to honor these men, my suggestion is that you recognize both families, the one that you escaped from and the one that lovingly took you in. Tell these fathers of yours that you would like them both to flank you as you walk down the aisle. If your father doesn't want to do this, decides to punish you by acting unhappy about it, or gets too drunk on the day to manage, then you should press ahead with your fiance's father. I urge you to find support group for adult children of alcoholics. This sort of support would help you so much as you enter this exciting and stressful time for your life. Check adultchildren.org. Okay, what else is going on today in history? On December 15, 1791, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution, went into effect following ratification by Virginia. On this date, in 1890, Sioux Indian Chief Sitting Bull and 11 other tribe members were killed in Grand River, South Dakota, during a confrontation with Indian police. In 1939, the Civil War motion picture epic Gone with the Wind had its world premiere in Atlanta. In 1944, a single-engine plane carrying band leader Glenn Miller, a major in the U.S. Army forces, disappeared over the English Channel while en route to Paris. In 1967, the silver bridge between Gallipolis, Ohio and Point Pleasant, West Virginia, collapsed into the Ohio River killing 46 people. In 1978, President Jimmy Carter announced he would grant diplomatic recognition to Communist China on New Year's Day and sever official relations with Taiwan. In 2000, the long-troubled Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine was closed for good. In 2001, with a crash in a large dust cloud, a 50-foot-tall section of steel the last standing piece of the World Trade Center facade was brought down in New York. In 2011, the flag used by the U.S. forces in Iraq was lowered in a low-key Baghdad airport ceremony marking the end of the war that had left 4,500 Americans and 110,000 Iraqis dead and cost more than $800 billion. In 2013, Nelson Mandela was laid to rest in his childhood hometown, ending a 10-day mourning period for South Africa's first black president. In 2016, a federal jury in Charleston, South Carolina, convicted Dylan Roof 
of slaughtering nine black church members who had welcomed him to their Bible study. In 2020, the Food and Drug Administration cleared the first kit that consumers could buy without a prescription to test themselves for COVID-19 entirely at home. After weeks of holding out, Russian President Vladimir Putin congratulated Joe Biden on winning, on winning the presidential election. Ten years ago, a day after the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newton, Connecticut, investigators worked to understand what led the 20-year-old gunman to slaughter 26 children and adults after also killing his mother and before taking his own life. In his Saturday radio address, President Barack Obama declared that every parent in America has a heart heavy with hurt and said it was time to take meaningful action to prevent more tragedies like this. Okay, let's turn the page. Now we're going to talk about the nation and the world section of the paper. Let's go to Digest first. Trump company held in contempt. In New York, Donald Trump's company impeded a grand jury investigation last year by repeatedly failing to turn over evidence in a timely fashion, leading to a secret contempt finding and a $4,000 fine, according to court records made public on Tuesday. The Trump organization was found to have been willfully disobeying four grand jury subpoenas and three court orders to the detriment of Manhattan prosecutors who were left ill-prepared to question witnesses Judge Juan Manuel Merchan ruled. The subpoenas preceded the Trump Organization's July 2021 indictment on criminal tax fraud, charges for helping executives avoid taxes on company-paid perks. The company was convicted this month and faces a fine of up to $1.6 million. In April, a judge held Trump in contempt and fined him $110,000 for being slow to respond to a civil subpoena issued by New York's Attorney General. In Washington, shooting survivors press for gun bill. Survivors of a mass shooting at a Colorado gay nightclub testified on Wednesday to Congress about the onslaught of threats and violence against members of the LGBTQ community as they urged lawmakers to pass a law banning some semi-automatic weapons. Michael Anderson, a 25-year-old bartender at Club Q, described how his place of work was a safe haven for him and many others before a 22-year-old shooter turned a drag queen's birthday celebration into a massacre on November 19th. Five people were killed. 25 were injured before the shooter, armed with an AR-15-style semi-automatic weapon, was subdued by patrons. Wednesday, testimony to the House Oversight Committee came as lawmakers raced to finish their work for the year. To the frustration of many Democrats, the year-end agenda doesn't include legislation to ban semi-automatic firearms due to firm Republican opposition. In other news briefs, Africa Summit. President Joe Biden told dozens of African leaders gathered at the three-day U.S.-African Leaders Summit in Washington that the U.S. is all in on Africa's future, laying out billions in promised government funding and private investment Wednesday to help the continent in health, infrastructure, business, and technology. Police state 
Peru's new government imposed a police state Wednesday in response to a to violent protests following the ouster of President Pedro Castillo. The 30-day national emergency declare declaration, I should say, suspends the rights of personal security and freedom across the Andean nation. Korea. The United States military formally launched a Space Force unit at Osan Air Base near Seoul in South Korea on Wednesday, its first such facility on foreign territory that likely will enable Washington to better monitor its rivals North Korea, China, and Russia. Georgia elections. Georgia's top elections official, Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, urged state lawmakers Wednesday to end general election runoffs, of which this month's bitter Senate contest was the latest example. In Hamas, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians on Wednesday thronged to downtown Gaza to mark the 35th anniversary of the founding of the Hamas militant group. As leaders predicted, a year of open confrontation with the hardline Israeli government expected to take office in the coming days. And finally, in news briefs, COVID-19. China said Wednesday that it will no longer report asymptomatic COVID-19 cases since they've become impossible to track with mass testing. No longer required, another step in the country's departure from some of the world's strictest pandemic policies. In San Francisco, alleged attacker told police of evil man accused in Paul Pelosi beating, said he had several targets. The man accused of attacking the husband of U.S. House press, or I should say U.S. House Speaker, rather, uh, Nancy Pelosi, said that there was evil in Washington. And he was looking to harm Pelosi because she is second in line for the presidency. A San Francisco police sergeant testified on Wednesday. The suspect, David DePape, broke into the Pelosi San Francisco home on the 28th of October, seeking to kidnap the speaker, who was out, out, out of town, and instead beat her 82-year-old husband, Paul Pelosi, with a hammer, authorities said. Sergeant Carla Hurley, who interviewed DePape for an hour the day of the attack, testified Wednesday that DePape told her of other people that he wanted to target, including California Governor Gavin Newsom, actor Tom Hanks, and Hunter Biden, one of President Joe Biden's sons. DePape, wearing an orange jumpsuit during a preliminary hearing in state court, has pleaded not guilty to federal and state charges, including attempted murder, burglary, and elder abuse. He remains held without bail. There is evil in Washington. What they did went so far beyond the campaign. It originates with Hillary Clinton, DePape told Hurley, Hurley, I should say, uh, according to her testimony. And she said he also remarked, honestly, day in and day out, they are lying. They go from one crime to another crime to another crime. Ukraine says that Russian airstrikes are thwarted. Authorities say that air defense brought down 13 exploding drones. Ukrainian authorities said that they thwarted a Russian attack on Kyiv and the surrounding region Wednesday as their air defense system de uh, destroyed 13 explosive-laden drones, though wreckage damaged five buildings without causing casualties. 
The attempted strike underlined how vulnerable Ukraine's capital remains to the regular Russian attacks. Uh, devastated infrastructure and population centers in recent weeks, mostly in the countries east and south. They also highlighted Ukraine's claim of increasing efficiency in intercepting drones and missiles and the possibility that Patriot missiles from the U.S. could further boost defenses. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said in a video that the terrorists fired 13 Iranian-made drones and all were intercepted. Such drones have part of the firepower that Russia uses to target power stations, water facilities, and other public utility equipment. The snow-covered capital remained largely calm after the foiled attack, which occurred near daybreak. As the workday began, authorities sounded the all-clear. The head of the Kyiv city administration wrote on Telegram that the attempted strike came in two waves, wreckage from the intercepted drones, damaged an administrative building, and four residential buildings. Storm system leaves two dead. Part of central U.S. experienced tornadoes, blizzard-like conditions. In New Orleans, a destructive storm system rippling the U.S. spawned tornadoes that killed a young boy and his mother in Louisiana, smashed mobile homes and chicken houses in Mississippi, threatened neighboring southern states with additional severe weather on Wednesday. To the north, the huge storm system delivered blizzard-like conditions to the Great Plains and was expected to push more snow and ice into Appalachia and New England. The wintry blast dumped more than two feet of snow in parts of South Dakota. In northern Louisiana, it took hours for authorities to find the bodies of a mother and child reported missing after a tornado struck the rural Keithville community near Shreveport on Tuesday afternoon. The Cato Parish Coroner's Office said that the body of an eight-year-old, Nicholas Little, was found at about 11 p.m. Tuesday in a wooded area. His mother, Yoshoko A. Smith, age 30, was found dead under storm debris at about 2.30 a.m. on Wednesday. Sheriff Steve Porter said that their home was destroyed and the boy ended up a half a mile away while his mother's body was discovered one street over from where their house stood. He said that the child's father reported them missing. We couldn't even find the house and that he was describing with the address. Everything was gone, Prater told Shreveport TV station KSLA. Icy weather from the huge storm was expected to affect the U.S. from coast to coast. It began by dumping heavy snow in the Sierra Nevada and was predicted to bring ice and snow to the eastern U.S. in the coming uh, days. The system's notable for the fact that it's going impact areas all the way from California to eventually the northeast, said Frank Pieria, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in College Park, Maryland. In the Black Hills of western South Dakota, snow piled up to nearly two feet in some uh, mountainous com uh, communities. They shovel for hours on end, said Vicki Weekly, who manages a historical hotel in the tourist and gambling city of Deadwood, where a few visitors were still venturing out to hit the casinos. Interstate 90, spanning the western half of South Dakota, remained closed on Wednesday. And that just about does it for the reading of The Courier for Thursday, December 15th. I am your reader, Peter Welch, and you've been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network reading for the blind and the disabled. And you've got 10 days to go for the shopping here 
So get it done and stay warm. Bundle up. It's going to get very cold out there. Take care. Stay well. Bye-bye, everybody. 